Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. I want to start today off with a a couple of stories. The first one being a moment when I was preaching in a church in Montreal. I was preaching about anxiety. And as I do here at One Church Theo and our teaching pastors, at one point I talked about sometimes we experience a depth of anxiety in life that we may need to consult a medical professional or even medication uh, because it's not a sign of weakness or a lack of faith when we reach out to someone to help us when we're experiencing mental or emotional difficulties. Just as it's not a sign of weakness or a lack of faith if we're physically struggling and we reach out to a doctor. It's really just acknowledging that we're not God. And God's provided many ways for us to be healed and restored. Well, while I was speaking and I said that little bit, uh, I felt my phone buzz in my back pocket. Someone was texting me while I was speaking. Now, I waited until I left, we concluded the gathering, I walked off the platform, I pulled my phone out, and this was the text message waiting for me. You are a Nazi out to destroy our church. (laughs) A little extreme. I had offended this woman who thought mental and emotional issues were just spiritual issues, amplified spiritual issues, and I shouldn't be including medical professionals or, or maybe even medicine in that conversation. And, uh, but, but it was quite extreme. This is one of the reasons I don't like to give out my cell phone number. I have some trauma around this. In, in that same church, a different time, my wife was coming into a worship gathering. Her name's Shelly, and she sat down next to a woman Uh, and she just leaned over and said, hi, how are you? And the woman responded instantly, I'd be much better if your husband would start being a better pastor. I I had offended her because we had changed a little bit of how the gatherings ran, and this offended her, and she would call it a righteous offense. She had a righteous anger, and that might be the most difficult anger to let go of. So let me ask you this. At the beginning of our teaching time here, this is not for you to ask anyone around you, but how easily offended are you? I mean, if there was a scale of easily offendable scale, where would you be? From easily offendable to being totally unoffendable. Where, where would you line up and just, just kind of take your temperature here at the beginning of this teaching moment? Where would you be when it comes to being unoffendable or easily offended? No matter where you might normally be, I'm sure, I'm sure over these last couple of years, some of us who might have been over here, we've moved a little over here. Some of us who are here, we've moved a little bit here. There's been no lack of opportunities to be offended over these last, uh, last couple of years easily. The word offended, defined by the dictionary, simply means this. It's a feeling, a feeling or expressing hurt, indignation, or irritation because of a perceived wrong or insult. And it's often expressed as anger. I think we know what offended looks like. I like the definition of the Urban Dictionary. It just says this, the state in which everyone seems to be in. It doesn't seem to be this way, right? I I mean, look at these last couple of years. 
there's been multiple opportunities for you to be offended, all of us to be offended. Vaxxed or unvaxxed, masked or unmasked, liberal, conservative, restrictions, freedoms, plenty of reasons to be offended, plenty of reasons to get angry, plenty of reasons to become bitter. So I wanna ask you this question. What if I told you that you could be unoffendable? Uh, the author, Brant Hansen, in his book, Unoffendable, he makes two audacious statements, two audacious statements that are challenging. The first one he said in his book was this, you can choose to be unoffendable. Now, some of you, you might find that unoffensive because you're thinking like, I know I can't choose to be unoffendable. He would, he would make a case that you and I could actually choose to be unoffendable. Now, actually, this is kind of good news. If we were, just imagine this, if we were unoffendable or certainly less offendable than we are right now, this means that we're not as controllable. Every time we hold on to offenses and when we become easily triggered, really, we're controlled by social media, by, by our culture and our world around us. This is quite a freeing statement, but he goes on, he even challenges a harder statement for me anyways. Christians should be the least offendable people in the world. Uh, sadly, I don't think this is the case though. I think if you were on my Twitter feed and saw what I see Christians saying, or maybe you know, and maybe you've had moments like this over these last couple of years, where you'd have to admit like, ah, oh, that's not me. The least offendable people? It seems like in our world, people are increasingly becoming triggered so easily. And I think also too, there's an addiction to anger. Listen, let's be honest. I'm gonna be very straight with us tonight. I don't mean to offend anyone, but listen, uh, we love our anger. Now, we don't love the object of what we're angry at. We don't, we don't like maybe the people involved, but we love the feeling that anger gives us. See, anger gives us a feeling of being in charge and safe. If we feel offended, when we get anger back or we express anger, all of a sudden we feel like we're in charge and we're safe over our life and over our circumstances. It's almost like a dopamine hit that just says, oh, we can rise up to this. And so in a re very real way, you watch people as they get offended. They, it's like they get into a castle and they build walls and they destroy bridges or they lift up the drawbridge and then they feel safe and protected in their castle of anger but it's really an illusion. It's, it's not a castle, it's a prison. It's not a drawbridge, it's a cell door. Uh, nobody wins in this perspective. We're not in charge or safe, we're trapped. But anger gives us that illusion. Anger also gives us the illusion that we're somehow winning. If I can hold something over you, you've offended me. Or I can hold it over someone else. The moment I let go of anger, maybe they or that have won. And so we hold on to anger and we nurse our anger and our offense and our offended hearts. Why? Because it gives us a sense of winning, but it's an illusion. We're actually losing in those moments. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about anger and I brought up this verse, Ephesians chapter four, verse 26, where the apostle Paul says this, in your anger, do not sin. And it's interesting because listen, we're all human. And some of this message needs to be tempered with that reality. But this, this little verse has justified many Christians nursing anger and holding on to anger. Because they would say this, well, I'm angry, but I'm not going to kill anyone. 
I'm not, I'm not out to hurt anyone. And so we hold on to our resentment and our anger, but it's almost like we stopped reading in verse 26. If you keep reading down to verse 31, the apostle Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. He says this, get rid of, and can you say this word with me? All. Now, what do you think that word means? You know what it means in the Greek? It means all. <laughs> all. Get rid of all bitterness. Bitterness is anger that has become deep-seated and nursed and it's latent in our lives. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Paul says, get rid of it. Don't hold on to it. Don't nurse it. Don't allow it to become a part of your life. But this is where people will push back, and I get it. They'll say, hey, Jonathan, though, Jesus got anger, angry, and yes, he did. You know what's interesting, though? Because I've heard this argument so many times over the years, that somehow because Jesus got angry, we have a right to our anger and we can hold on to it. You know what's interesting though? If, if you go through, and I would encourage you to do this, this is a great exercise. I went through the gospels, which are the accounts of Jesus' life, and I saw all the moments that Jesus got angry. And when you read them, you realize quickly, his anger never had to do with anything to do with him, had nothing to do with his rights, had no benefit to himself. His anger was an expression of love. It was an extension of love. I, I think Jesus is the only one that could hold anger perfectly because he was fully righteous and holy. And so his, love, his anger was expressed either to wake up a group of people that he really dearly loved and he wanted good for them or to, to defend a, people, a group of people who were being oppressed. And again, that anger was perfect in that it was expressed and it was a part of an extension of love. But, and this is the big argument too. I, I get this one. And I think our world gets this right in this moment. But Jonathan, if I didn't get angry, things wouldn't get done. You know, there's a lot of injustices in this world. And I can't deny that anger causes people to take action, doesn't it? Anger causes people to take action. That's that, that third point. They, and the, the illusion is if we lose anger, then we'll stop addressing the injustices in the world, the systemic poverty or racism or the sexism that exists in this world. We need angry people to rise up to, make about, to bring about change. That's how things get done. That's why it's sometimes called righteous anger because maybe at the other end of it, there can be some righteous looking outcomes that happen. But there's a fine line here. I tweeted this out a few weeks ago on my Twitter account. I said this, if your righteous conviction leads you to unrighteous conduct, it's proof positive that you can be right and so very wrong. If righteousness leads us to devalue or damage a human, that is not the righteousness that Jesus lived. See, Jesus didn't use his righteousness to destroy others, but we can have, and I'm watching many Christians with these righteous convictions, but it's leading them to unrighteous conduct, where all of a sudden, they, they don't mind expressing things, maybe in ways that don't sound very loving, aren't very nice, <laughs> and maybe nice is not always the goal, but love is the goal. See, choosing not to take offense is not about ignoring wrong in this world. We're not, we should not ignore the wrong in this world. Uh, as part of our church, we have five bold moves that we've led into, and one of them is to champion justice in the Jesus way. There are so many injustices in this world. 
There's so many injustices in the nation of Canada. The, the treatment of an indigenous people, uh, BIPOC people, uh, uh, the sexism, the systemic poverty that exists in this world. And all of these at root have power at its source. And it's the leveraging of power. And so how do you address issues like this? Well, why we say in the Jesus way is we don't believe that the ends justifies the means. Even as I'm dealing with an injustice in this world or an unrighteous issue in this world, it doesn't validate, I don't want to become like that injustice in order to battle it. Instead, I want to rise above it and choose a different way. Think about it this way. Anger is a, a fascinating thing and it does incite action, absolutely. But the best police officers and the best soldiers in this world don't act out from a place of anger. In fact, police officers that nurse anger or, or uh, soldiers that nurse anger often abuse their power. Often they become very dangerous themselves. When the early Christians began to address the systemic injustices in their world, it wasn't anger that ended infanticide, which was the killing of small babies, which was a common practice in the first century. It, it didn't, it's not what ended the oppression of women or the systemic neglect of the weak and the poor and the impoverished or the sick. It wasn't anger that was a catalyst that changed the world. It was love. It was love that fueled them to action. It was love that fueled them to address the racism that was around them. It was love that fueled them to address the, the break the bias moments and our Love Army challenge is going to be coming this March and I hope you participate in it to raise up the level of equality between men and women. It's love that fuels us to respond to what is going on in the Ukraine in this moment. You know, if it's love that causes you to give to Erdo which is our partner in responding to that crisis. If it's love that motivates you to pray for peace in the Ukraine, then it will be love that will also allow you to pray for the Russian people and pray for all of the players that might be involved. Because while anger depletes us, love fuels us where anger depletes us. Love frees us where anger imprisons us. Love is not passive. Love is not nice. Love is active. Love takes action on the behalf of those that they love, those that are around them. So you could listen to this point and say, Jonathan, okay, this sounds like mother, motherhood and apple pie. How do I actually, come on, get practical. How do I actually become unoffendable? Well, listen, first, let me just acknowledge imperfectly. <laughs> well, none of us are going to do this perfectly. Uh, but the second thing we need to acknowledge is that really we always need to keep a big cup of grace in our hand as we're navigating this world, as we're navigating our social media, big cup of grace. And we need to pause and sip on that a few times as we navigate this conversation. But I'm going to give you two different ways of looking at the world, two paradigm shifts that'll help you become unoffendable and one practical practice. You ready to go? The first one is simple and hard. It's simply this. We need to lower our expectations of people. We need to lower our expectations of people. So many people get offended in this life because they expect too much of others. And have you ever been caught in this trap where I expect more of others than of myself? Now, maybe that's not you. But Jesus is interesting. There's a beautiful two verses. I've probably read them many times. 
and miss the significance of them, and maybe you have. They're in John chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, says this, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew about people. Jesus knew about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. I mean, Jesus is never shocked by what came out of the mouths of people around him. He wasn't shocked at the self-centeredness he saw. He wasn't scandalized by people's immoral behavior. None of that threw him because he knew the condition of the human heart and he knew how it worked. Part of being unoffendable in life is that we see the human heart for what it is. Prone to wander, prone to selfishness, untrustworthy, unfaithful, Often, often. Now, if you're hearing, you're hearing that, you're going, and you say, well, Jonathan, that's exactly how I see the world. That's why I don't expect people to be less offensive in life. Then I'd say, be careful, friends. You, you could be too cynical. See, there's idealism and there's realism in life. Idealism and realism in life. And you might be so on that realism side that you cannot even see the good in people What's interesting about Jesus is Jesus is not shocked by people at all. He wasn't shocked at the Pharisees. He wasn't shocked at the immoral behavior of others, but he wasn't cynical either. He wasn't cynical or jaded. He wasn't shocked. You know, he saw all types of immorality around him and at no point is he ever taken back and shocked by it. Why, how could he hold both the realism of humanity as well as the idealism of re reality? Well, I'm gonna give you one word. It's simply this, maturity. Jesus was mature enough and healthy enough to see that this world could be both beautiful and messed up at the exact same time. That every human we interact with has the image of God stamped on their life. And so there's goodness somewhere in there. It might be deep, but there's somewhere in there as well as he's not shocked when maybe we choose to go a different path and it doesn't look at all like goodness. See, this is my Achilles heel. I, I'm way more towards the idealism part than I am the realism part. And you would think, I'll, I'll, this April, I will have been pastoring for 30 years. You would think I'd be more in touch with that realism part. But I just believe humans can change and I'm looking for the good all the time. But I gotta, I gotta tell you that some of that idealism is quite immature though. It's quite immature. It's not healthy. Are you trying to say, Pastor Jonathan, that you're immature in places of my life? Yes, 100%. See, the immaturity of my idealism usually comes out in, I can't believe that statements. I can't believe a politician would lie. I, I can't believe a pastor would cheat on his wife. I can't believe a friend would gossip about me. I can't believe a dictator would terrorize people. And every time I posture myself that I'm always shocked, always shocked at the difficulties or the humanity of life, what happens is I become much more offendable if I'm not careful. Humans are, and if you're an idealist in the room today, just hear me, humans are judgmental and self-righteous. That's not a cynical statement, that is a realistic statement. Every human person is messy, even the tidy looking ones, even the ones that say all the right things. There's a little bit of a storm in places of their psyche, mind, and spirit. We're all a little messy. 
Now, if you're thinking though, and this is why I want to challenge, I, I've talked about the idealists in the room, and that'd be me, the realists in the room, be careful of cynicism. Be careful of becoming jaded. What's interesting about Jesus is Jesus could see the good in people. He knew there was goodness lurking in them. He's not shocked by them. Now, if every time you see goodness coming out of a person, you know you're becoming cynical when you're trying to determine what's their angle. What's their angle? What's in it for them? What are they driving at? You know that in your state of realism, you're losing some of the idealism of the kingdom of God that does lurk in the soul and heart of every human being and has potential of bursting out in a moment. So you can see in the same person (laughs) some conflicting offensive things and you can see some good things in them. And Jesus is able to hold those things in tension. Maturity and healing is the key. Some of us need healing and our offenses are rooted in in our our woundedness. Some of us need to to grow some more maturity and our offenses is rooted in our immaturity. The fact is, when you lower the expectations of people, it's not lowering that you're not going to find the good. It's recognizing every human being's got got, got both parts at play inside of them. And even every Christian does. It's called the, the old person and the new person in Christ Jesus, but they're at war with each other. And some days this one pops out more than this one. It doesn't mean this one's not there. So there's a maturity that Jesus has. He's not offendable because he's not shocked at those moments. He expects humans are going to be like that. The second thing to becoming unoffendable, the paradigm shift, is we need to raise our expectations for life of both the hard things in life we're going to experience and the good. So number one, lower your expectations of people. Number two, raise your expectations of what we could experience in life. When you live in a nation like Canada, you need to really keep in tension that idea of what we deem the good life to be and what Jesus teaches his followers. In Matthew chapter five, he said these words, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. It's interesting, the word that Jesus uses for blessed there equals the English word for happy. Uh, This is is a little disturbing. He's kind of saying this. He's saying happy, the most happiest, well-adjusted, peace-filled humans on the earth will be those who are willing to take it on the chin on occasion. They're the ones who are going to be the ones that are going to, because of their belief and love in Jesus, they're going to be willing to take it on the chin on occasion. The happy people will be the persecuted, the slandered, the insulted, the sucker punched, the excluded, the bullied, all because of their connection to Jesus, that they're somehow a joy in that. And you know, who's signing up for that? I don't want to sign up for that. What does he mean by this? Well, many of us walk around offended and we have a paradigm problem. Because we think blessed means ease and comfort. And you know, only you can test your heart. And yet we can't even trust our heart. And this is why David, King David, the psalmist would say, uh, and he called on God, search my heart. See, see what's in there. Because we have a way of deceiving our own selves, don't we? But we have a way of saying that we invite Jesus to be a part of our life as almost like an additive I'm just going to mix them in with my life and everything. Why? Because I want things to go well. I want everything to go well in life. 
But life isn't always like that. In 2018, CNN reported that over 100 uh, Christians in China were charged with, quote-unquote, inciting subversion of the state power. One of the people charged was this man, Reverend Wang Yi. And he was a leader of a, the underground and a thriving underground church network in China. And when he was arrested and taken into prison, he wrote something called My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. Here's what he says. I have no fear of any social or political power. For the Bible teaches us that God establishes governmental authorities in order to terrorize evil doers and not terrorize doers of good. This is the very reason the communist regime is filled with fear at the church that is no longer afraid of it. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. Separate me from my wife, my children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my, fam and my family. Authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one can force me to renounce my faith. Meanwhile, in the West, our feelings get hurt and we draw relationally from people that we've known for years even. We become hostile with anyone who criticizes us or our faith. We think some restrictions or limitations are somehow some form of persecution. We become so easily offended. I don't say that to offend anyone that's listening. We've been through a lot for these last couple of years. There's been suffering. We've had to endure a lot of things. But I do say this because I do think sometimes if you're going to walk an unoffendable life, you need to recalibrate your expectations in this life. Hey, life is hard. Life is difficult. Stop being shocked by that when it comes our way. In the words of that great poet, that great poet laureate, Lil Wayne, he said this, it didn't need to be easy. I need it to be worth it. Listen, we all know that some of the most challenging and difficult moments in our life will either cement brokenness in us or will raise greatness out of us. We're watching firsthand in the nation of Ukraine as we're watching a former actor and comedian, their president, demonstrate true servant leadership in that moment. And it's inspiring you can see good in that. You see this, this tenacity, that hard, difficult, terrible moment is bringing out the very best of this person in that moment. Well, we all have that choice. We all have that choice. You know, friends, we need to raise our expectations that life th throws us curveballs. We need to stop being shocked by it or we'll, we'll live in a state of offense with God and with others. We need to lower our expectations of others. Now, when I say raise your expectations of life, I don't mean just of anticipating the hardship of life, but even looking for the good in life. When you look for it, you'll find it. You'll find it. You'll sacrifice for it. You'll be a part of building that goodness in this life. So lower your expectations of people. Raise your expectations of life, both the hard stuff in life and the good stuff in life. And the, this is the third and final point. Stop wearing hand-me-down offenses. I'm one of four boys. Uh, we, we, uh, we're all a year apart. We shared one bedroom growing up, and we had one dresser drawers filled with clothes. And really, the clothes in that 
was for anyone who got to it first. I mean, I lived with hand-me-down clothes. You probably did too. It was kind of normal growing up in a, in a large family. So I, I, I lived with hand-me-down clothes my whole life. Now, the interesting thing about a hand-me-down clothes, you need to remember, it's not original to you. So it, it didn't originally even belong to you. And it's also come to you in an altered state. It's either been hemmed or maybe, maybe the knees have given out on it, but it's in an altered state. And that's the same with hand-me-down offenses. Hand-me-down offenses aren't original to us. But I, I watch people, I think in this season even more, more of hand-me-down offenses are sticking to people all over the place. They're not original to you, and they come to you altered. You're not experiencing the offense firsthand. You don't actually know what's going on. Actually, sometimes when it's handed to us, it's been spun, it's been curated or changed by the owner to fit their narrative. Years ago, I got a letter, I was pastoring in a different church, I got a letter from someone living in a different city from another province. Some of their friends attended the church I was pastoring, and uh, they, they wrote me this letter to chastise me and chastise our board uh, for the treatment of their friends. I read this letter with great interest because it's not often, you get emails, but it's not often I get a letter. But the letter left out all the facts of the situation. I quickly realized that their friend only told them what was pertinent to know, what, they, what was advantageous to know. They didn't know all of the things that what, what was actually going on. So I wrote them back. I wrote them back and I wrote a kind letter because I know Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a grievous word stirs up anger. So I wrote a kind letter back and I, and I thanked them for their obvious love for their friends. They obviously loved their friends. I didn't argue the facts. I didn't share new information because I wasn't about to enlarge the circle. But here's a paragraph that I wrote in this letter. I said, if the account you write was the entirety of the story, I would understand why you would feel offense. However, as the writer of Proverbs writes, there are two sides to every story. The first one to speak sounds true until you hear the other side and they set the record straight. See, the writer of Proverbs is smart here. And we all carry, and you probably carry right now, some hand-me-down offenses. See, if you love someone, whether it's a friend, family member or anything like that, if you love someone, it's so tempting to pick up their offense in a, in a moment of solidarity, like I'm with you in this. And in a moment of support, we pick up their offense. We need to recognize though, every time we're picking up that offense, that we don't have the full picture because it's a secondhand offense. We weren't at work with them. We don't know all the facts. Maybe the workplace situation has another side to it. Maybe, maybe. You're hearing one story. Of course you get offended by it. We don't have all the facts. Maybe, maybe what is being presented is a well-manicured uh, group of facts. Now, why would someone do that? Well, sometimes our egos are pretty shallow <laughs> and fragile. And so we kind of shape the world in a way that makes us feel like we're okay. Uh, we need to acknowledge that we have limited perspective. We don't have per per perfect perspective. If you're a parent, you know that. It's hard to be objective about your own children. Something happens at school, you can't help but lean in to think, well, not my kid, not my kid. We, we have a skewed perspective. Here's what we forget in the middle of that. You can support someone, 
You can love them and encourage them without picking up their offense. In fact, I would say it might be more loving to encourage them through a difficult season or even love corrects them if they're wrong. Love loves them so much that you don't want to see them damage themselves or damaged other people by holding on to an offense that be, is expressed in anger and if, if it's held on to long enough, becomes bitterness. Bitterness is this latent anger that influences our entire lives moving forward. So friends, if you want to live an unoffendable life, lower your expectations of others, raise your expectations in life that life can be hard and good. Raise those expectations. And third, stop wearing hand-me-down offenses. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing, both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.